Welcome to Journey of an Esthete Podcast, Book Lunch. That was um, a uh, theme song for the that I wrote for this particular series. Um, and I got through that quickly. Today is a special, um, a special uh, stream for a couple of reasons. It's about two of the major intellectuals of the 20th century, bar none. So Hannah Arendt and Isaiah Berlin. And I'm enormously fond of both. I've been thinking about them and occasionally writing about them, speaking about them for, I would say, close to 30 years. And so this is really about one book, which I will show you here. Kei Haruda. And I got some some special special uh, audio visual aids here today. Um, come over here. Um, well, Kehiruda. So I want to I want to um, kind of um, introduce the personal dimension. So why Isaiah Isaiah Berlin and Hannah Arendt? Why them and not other people? Or what is my journey with them? Because this is oft, after all my show is Journey of an Esthete. And uh, this is a journey. I'm the esthete for lack of a better identity. And um, so I think in the early 90s, so I was living in Boston, 1994, five, I would just graduated, got my master's in music. And I always made it a point to enrich my, um, enrich myself intellectually. It's always very important to me. So however busy I was with other projects, with music, I was always saying, well, you know, I have to educate myself. Um, and I was in the Andover shop, I think, ordering some trousers. And this would have been in the fall. And I met many, so I used to, I was friends with Charles Davidson who ran Andover shop. And part of the advantage of hanging out there is you would meet Lewis Henry Gates, uh, Obama when he was a student, just hanging out buying some trousers when he was just a kid. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, um, you name it, uh, the Kennedys. I mean, they would all come there. They would sort of, it was just amazing. You know, that was a whole, I mean, just a million of that. Anyhow. One of the students there, undergraduate, I think, said, you know, Mitch, you would really like this guy, Don Fleming. Don Fleming teaches a class at Harvard called European Intellectual History. And you should audit his class and talk to him because you're, you know, he said you're bright enough. He might find you. It was a lecture class. Now, I, I mentioned Don Fleming for a reason. Um, I did audit his class. I wrote a paper on Schleiermacher's Life of Jesus and George Eliot, Marianne Evans. I don't know why I wrote on those particular that particular text. I think I was trying to deal with German idealism and, and 19th, I don't know, something having to do with uh, different views of, of theology or anyhow, that's the kind of stuff I'm into. But we'll get, don't worry, we'll get to K in a minute. Here's K. 
with the book. Get to him in a minute. And I took Don Fleming's class. Now, Don Fleming was a lecture of what I would call the old school of great oration. And Isaiah Berlin was that kind of orator. I mean, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna deliver to you some examples of Berlin's oration. For Berlin, his oration, his oratory, his speaking is inseparable from his writing, because I think he dict, I think he spoke his essays and dictated them. I think, and so there's an interesting sense in which it's all one. And so he spoke in the most beautiful high style that you can imagine. And that style has its own language and its own techniques and its own tone and its own attitude. Don Fleming spoke that way. He would show up and he was like a penguin. He had a bald head and he would put a suitcase in front of the podium and he would start talking about, you never knew what he was going to talk about. He talked about Kant or he talked about Hegel. Or he talked about Marx. He talked about, uh, George Eliot's Middlemarch and the influence on Middlemarch of, I don't know, of her theology, theology background and all this stuff. And I wrote a paper on that. But anyhow, I only mentioned that because I had a uh, already a personal connection to um, this kind of stuff. And then Isaiah Berlin dies in 1997. I'm reading The New Republic and there's all these tributes to him. And I want to find out, well, who is this guy? Um, make a long story short, I made a plan to read everything the guy wrote. So I've got all his letters. Letters of, you know, about what, you know, to the Kennedys, Jack Kennedy and to heads of state and Winston Churchill and all this kind of stuff. Um, when, he, when he passes, there's this book in which all the major British scholars of the time um, got together and said, well, you know, what, let's tribute this, pay tribute homage to this man. And what is he, what was he about? Um, he was writing to a Polish dissident in the, in the 80s and 90s, living under um, those awful, one of those awful regimes. And, the, and, and he and her were sharing ideas and writing letters back and forth about what democracy is, what justice is. So um, that's, you know, Isaiah Berlin pluralism, value pluralism. I'm a values pluralist, um, practically all the way down. And uh, he, he was a proud liberal. I think there's, there's, a, um, there's a letter here. I may have to actually get up and get another book, but because um, I may not have all my books here, so you'll have to, you'll have to, uh, you'll have to um, bear with me. So that's Isaiah Blend. Now, Hannah Arendt, um, I discovered when I was a child because I came across a book called On Violence. And it was this little paperback from the 70s that had neon on violence. And that's a very attractive, you know, sex and violence attracts all of us. And it's just that title. I didn't know anything about it. And I read this, this long essay about what violence was. And one of her ideas in that book is that power is not a pejorative. Power is actually a positive thing. Again, this is, she, she defines words in her own way, right? And power and violence are the opposite of each other. True power is nonviolent. And true power is compassion and empathy. I mean, she doesn't quite use those words, but she's one of the first people to sort of demonstrate that once you do violence, you've lost it. You're, 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 you're in hell. You've, you've, you've lost every, all your capacities. And it's just, you're just destroying things. You know, it's kind of a part of a critique of nihilism, I think, and nihilism. 
So violence and, and, and power opposites. And she's writing that, she's teaching at Chicago University in the late 60s. And this gets, it to, gets us to one of our first points of great conflict between Berlin and Arendt. Arendt loves the hippies and the student movements erupting them. She's a, as, as an older, she's a, you know, I don't know, she's in her 60s or whatever. She thinks it's great. Berlin, I have his letters here, he hates the hippies and he hates their disrespect of tradition and civilizational ideals and liberalism, that they're anti-liberal. He hates that they flirt with, um, I don't know, rigid communism or not, or not. But anyhow, so my first introduction to Berlin is, I mean, to Hannah Arendt is not the usual one. Usually when you're in school, you read Origins of Totalitarianism or you read her, uh, her Eichmann in Jerusalem. I should say that right now it's become official that Arendt is wrong about Eichmann in Jerusalem. I mean, NPR told me Eichmann was not banal. That's a whole debate over, so there's the personality of Eichmann, there's the motivation of Eichmann, the Nazi war criminal. Um, we can all agree that he's bad, and Arendt is very clear that you know she wanted him to be Han. She was one of the people that said, pain this man, you know, lifelong imprisonment's not enough. Um, but she had developed ideas about what evil is and banality, and there's a lot of misconceptions. So I want to, and it's a very sensitive trigger warning. We're going to be talking about Holocaust, Shoah, the Thir Third Reich, Stalinism. You know, we're going to get into that. I think, though, I want to I say what's good in Iran's analysis of Eichmann and Nazism, or what's accurate, and, and leave aside the controversy over was he acting? Was he performing? Was he, was he a true believer in anti-Semitism? All these things. I think what Iran is discussing is when something really evil takes hold of a society and people sort of ignore it or become numb to it. And I think that's the special sense she means by banality. And so she was seeing a whole, her, she comes from Germany. She fled Nazi Germany and she saw her country um, become, I guess the word is habituated to awfulness such that the awfulness doesn't even register. And so I think there's something of value in that. And so again, she's a controversial figure now because of these new revelations in a new documentary about Eichmann. An Israeli filmmaker, it's gonna come out, I think in a few months, you should see it, has revealed that we have these secret tapes where Eichmann is discussing how much he loves Nazism and you know, in, in a very non-bureaucratic, very passionate manner in a chilling manner, and that film is going to come out. And so, you know, with, with I want to say with a thinker like Hannah Arendt or Isaiah Berlin, when they make mistakes or they go wrong, it's still valuable because there's always some kernel of intelligence there because the, the quality of intellect is so high. You can't say that about a lot of figures. But anyhow, I only got into the later Hannah Arendt, like now, like in my four, 30s and 40s, I started to read the classics. And I'm right now in the middle of reading The Human Condition, which is this beautiful book about what it means to be human. Thus, the tagline of our very podcast, right? Everything connects, everything comes together. It's a beautiful book. I don't want to get into, into the weeds on that, but here is Kay in, introducing, before this has become a book, this is like three years before this, this is the very beginning. And he's saying, this is what my project is. So I, I think it's best to hear him express it because I, I love, his attitude, you know, and I think he's a scholarly philosophy at Oxford University in the UK and a Urias fellow here at the Paris Institute for Advanced Study. The best way to introduce my research is to ask you to think about the well-known maxim, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
We can be friends because you hate him and I hate him too. So this simple logic explains a lot of things, but it doesn't eliminate much when it comes to the topic of my research, my book project, the rivalry between Hannah Arendt and Isaiah Berlin. They suddenly shared an enemy, which was 20th century totalitarianism, the twin evils of Nazism and Stalinism. They were contemporaries, Arendt born in 1906, Berlin born in 1909. Both were emigre Jewish intellectuals who left continental Europe for the safety of the Anglophone world. They agreed that totalitarianism was the ultimate denial of human freedom and devoted their careers to understanding the nature and the sources of totalitarianism and finding ways to respond to the totalitarian threat. But Arendt and Berlin did not become friends as a result of sharing an enemy. On the contrary, they developed very different ideas, endorsed very different ideals, and held mutual dislike for each other. Why and what can we learn from their rivalry and their inability to understand each other? My book will answer these questions. So that's uh, Kay, the man himself, uh, talking about his um, his uh, book. Now I'm going to circle back to or to oratory and speech because there's a there's a highest art form of the kind of speech of someone like Berlin, who I think Don, man, I was just talking about uh, Fleming, Professor Fleming had, and I'm going to try to give you an excerpt of Berlin's lecture style right now just to get into this and, and so it gets it's very complicated because we're entering a world we're entering a world of great britain right after i would say right after world war one or between the wars so teens 20s 30s 40s that period um Berlin grew up in an affluent family of timber merchants in Riga, uh, as part of, I think a part of the uh, Russian area, Jewish. And then he, they flee uh, the Soviet system. So they flee a very bad system. And Berlin writes in his letters and his essays about seeing a man murdered outside of his, as a boy, he watched a man murdered by a political, I guess the Red Guard or something. And he was so horrified by the, by this kind of the way that he was murdered for 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 what for a political you know base basically i think with their bare hands they dragged him to his to his death and that's that image stayed with the boy and was one of the motivations for him to really dislike that system his family flees and they end up in england of all places now berlin's really interesting because he's an immigrant in england in the i think the well, that would have been, oh, in the, in the teens, 20s, so very early 20th century. And one of the first things that happens to Berlin as a teenager is he falls in love with English culture. He becomes, and he's, I have letters, he says, I'm an Anglophile. I love John Stuart Mill. I love British thought. I love British philosophy. I, so, so Isaiah Berlin is a Jew. He's a Zionist already. An interesting point of connection between Berlin and Hannah Arendt is that they're both early Zionists and advocates for Zionism as it was at that time before the formation of the state of Israel, when it was a, a, 
a desire for a homeland uh, to solve the problem of the Jewish diaspora, right? So he has that identity of growing up in an Orthodox Jewish family, but adopting a very secular, very um, academic culture of British thought. And so I'm going to show you an example of Berlin. You can see the, it's amazing. It's almost like, it's almost like the dude was born in England and not really get to hear him talk. I mean, he really took on this Englishness. Um, I'm trying to find here. Just bear with me. Um, hey, I had to find all these cues and I had to, you know. We'll get back to the book. This is a book lunch. But, you know, when you do a book like this, you got to bring all these other things in. So, you know, I'm having fun. This is a those who understand to try and circumscribe these things, to try and nail them down, to try and describe them, no matter how scrupulously, is a vain task. And this will be true not only of science, which of course does this by means of the most rigorous generalizations of to the romantics, the most external and empty kind, but even those scrupulous writers, those scrupulous describers of experience, realists, naturalists, those who those who belong to the school of um, the flow of consciousness, mystics, Tolstoy, the most gifted diviners of every movement of the human spirit, even those to the extent to which they commit themselves to some kind of objective description, whether by external inspection or the most subtle introspection, the most subtle insight into the inner movements of the spirit, so long as they labor under the illusion that it is possible once and for all to write down, to describe, to give any fidelity to the kind of process which they are trying to catch, which they are trying to nail down, so long as this goes on, unreditable result, fantasy will result. Some attempt always to cage the uncageable, so to speak. Some attempt always to pursue some kind of truth with the radio truth, to try and stop the unceasing flow, to catch movement by means of rest, to catch time by means of space, to catch light by means of darkness. That is the that's his lecture on Romanticism. Now, that's a long lecture, and it, it went through different um, iterations, you know. And But you can hear the subordinate clauses. You can hear he's sort of, he's not speaking for himself. He's saying, this is what these folks believed. This is what Shelley thought, not him. And so I really love that. I appreciate Isaiah Berlin is the kind of person that goes so deeply into what other people, not himself, thought that he's able to, in a way, speak for them or, or to understand the best that they can, even though they differ in background, they differ in time and space. So he's describing the romantic um, skepticism or, or disgust at trying to control, at trying to intellectualize, at trying to, as he said, you know, stop the flow of life. Life flows, you can't stop it, and he goes on. So it's interesting, I've heard this lecture through different versions. This is the 1965 version. I think at Mellon University. So Berlin was a celebrity. Berlin was a member of the British establishment. He was knighted sir after all. He was uh, talked to Winston Churchill. He wrote a long essay on the 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 the, um, the greatness of Churchill, for example. Um, you know, and so and he's a lifelong liberal. He says, "I'll die a liberal. I am a liberal." I'm trying to find that letter at the end of his life in 1997, where he he's debating a. Um, it's a friendly debate with, a, with an Hasidic scholar who wants to create a theocracy 
And Berlin says, I want to have a sec. I don't want a part of your, you know, government is supposed to represent all the people and, you know, not just Jews or not just Christians. And I don't want any part of your plan to have a religious government. You know, very, very toleration and free thinking. And you could hear in his voice, he's very capacious and he's very um, open that way. Um, I lost my train of thought. I was talking about, um, I think, yeah, England. And, and so it's interesting. Um, the very first version of this lecture on romanticism, I memorized the first sentence, and this is classic Berlin. He says, today, however rash it may seem, I offer thoughts about what I believe the heart of romanticism to be. So already in that one sentence, there's this kind of prose style that like, Notice the self-deprecation. He always puts in the humility and depth. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm gonna attempt to paint you the picture, however rash it may seem. He, he, so he's saying, it might seem rash, we'll never fully capture this thing, but I'm gonna try to anyhow, indulge me, bear with me. And so what I'm saying is that there's, there's, a, there's a, um, an attitude, these virtues of self-deprecation, of civility, of consideration, these sort of high style qualities that are all throughout his speaking. There's a, there's a, uh, Michael Anaktiev interviewed him in the 90s at the end of his life. This is like two years before the guy dies, right? And he's um, talking about why he doesn't like politics. He wrote about politics, he was a political philosopher, he wrote a book, he had he, he, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, he doesn't like it. And he gives a very good reason why, I think. This is, mm. There's an exceptional modality. That was a genuine political war. Here we go. Um, Here we go. This is really important. For Spain and things. They're not very political. That's the father of Jews. What do you mean they're, they're not very political. political? Well, because I don't, I was never interested in politics. <laughs> never. Such. Never just being professor of it. Politics were not the center of my thought. The center of my thought was literature, the arts, and people. Why do you think this pattern of avoiding political commitment emerges in you? What is it about I, you? I don't even avoid it. I simply didn't have it. I just wasn't terribly interested because I wasn't interested in day to day events. I was more interested in what might be called some you can see the thing say in the more permanent aspects of the human world, women such as hardware literature, not the daily papers, might be called some you can see the thing say in the more permanent aspects of the human world, women such as hardware literature. So he says he's more interested in the permanent aspects of the human world, such as art and literature. You can see why he, in a way, he's a patron saint of our podcast. Now, I should, I, should, I should get deep into this because he noticed he chooses his words carefully. He's anti-metaphysical, that is secular. Um, and that he, he gets that, I think that bias from the culture of England in the 30s. So that's Ayer, Ayer um, Austin. There was very sort of um, Oxford philosophy at that time had pretensions of being sort of scientific and no nonsense. So he doesn't use the word eternal which we more eventually uses the word permanent because he doesn't want to commit himself to any particular, you know, 
theological or spiritual, but he is interested in what lasts forever. And he says, politics is too daily. Contrast him with Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt, Arendt is already trying to help Jews escape. She's trying to uh, raise money to support um, Zionist youth groups in the 30s. She's hanging out with Walter Benjamin, one of the big Marxist scholars. She has an affair with her teacher, Martin Heidegger. And so we come to the first point of difference between these two individuals, these two worlds. And that's really the difference between Anglo-American philosophy, as it came to be known, and sort of French, German, German continental philosophy. And it's interesting. These are, you know, I'm in both worlds somewhat, and you have to really change your language when you talk to both worlds, because they still, not only do they not understand each other, they don't. And Berlin is very rooted in sort of Anglophone thinking, which is very no-nonsense, practical, very English, very like, you know, let's not get too passionate, a fear of getting too far out. Hannah Arendt wants to get far out. She wants, she writes books on what it is to be human and goes on and on. It's a, it's an entirely, uh, totally, totally different sen sensibilities. And you go to these two authors for what they offer. Berlin is telling you, well, this is what they fought in Greece at this time, or this is what the Russians think. I'm not going to say whether they're right or wrong. I'm going to, you know, inform you about what they felt or they thought. And Hannah Arendt is writing, what is violence? What is power? I mean, one of the most interesting things in Hannah Arendt is her idea of what thinking is. So for Arendt, that's why I brought this here, this Think Coffee. For Hannah Arendt defines thinking not as stuff going on in your head. That's not thinking at all. So it's not just cogitation. It's really specific. So to be really thinking, which is why she accused Adolf Eichmann of not being a thinker or not thinking. You have to have, for her, it includes empathy. It must include empathy to think. And it must uh, include a, she, it's kind of like a, a, a communion with oneself. It could be a communion with God or a creator. It could, it includes that. But it's not just yourself. You have to have a relation to another or to yourself. And I think, uh, you know, if you, if you were raised a certain way, if you had a grandmother or a mother, you know, for many years, they would say, stop and think. Why are you doing that wrong thing? So the, the commandment to stop and think twice, to think twice, to check yourself and be ethical. Hannah Arendt thinks that's the essence of thinking, actually. So thinking is not just any old thing coming into your head. It's very, it's for her a very, um, it's a very um, specific, very ethical, very um, elevated process that she feels anybody can do. Actually, any one of us can think in that way, and we're thinking right now in this very podcast. That's what we're doing now. So, so that kind of like you know, a mother telling her child, "Don't touch that hot stove. Stop and think." That's, um, that's really valuable. It may seem kind of homely, and it may seem kind of common, and it may seem kind of uh, uh, simple, but I think Arendt, the claim she makes about Nazi Germany is that an entire country could actually literally stop thinking and sign on to anything. That's kind of what she's worried about. And she, um, Isaiah Berlin never wrote deeply about such questions. It didn't interest him. You know, he was interested in Don Giovanni, the, that last act of Don Giovanni or something. I don't know. But anyhow, let's get to the book. What I love about Kehiruta's book, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, is he has a really, um, 
he has a he has the ability, and I, I try to do this in my work. He has the ability of summarizing or encapsulating um, the chief virtues of a person, and he does this with both these thinkers. So he says here, this study has been a testimony to William James's remark. The history of philosophy is to a great extent that of a certain clash of human temperaments, quote, unquote. So these two folks have different human temperaments. Hannah Arendt and Isaiah Berlin indeed had very different temperaments. She was brave, charismatic, upright, assertive, impulsive, tactless, argumentative. He was skeptical, ironical, humorous, charming. I mean, he wears a tie and vest, you know, charming. Good-mannered, talked about that, and thin-skinned. She remained something of an outsider in her adopted home country. He became an indisputable member of the British elite. She liked to think of herself as a conscious pariah, an independent voice challenging the conformism of professional thinkers. He liked to think of himself as a pluralist fox, emphasizing the importance of moderation and compromise in a world filled with fanatics and utopians. Go, you know, it's really, it's really, and that's from the conclusion. So he um, goes into great detail about uh, chapters like uh, uh, inhumanity, freedom, um, It's, it, 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 you know, so when you read a book like this, I mean, I just, uh, I sort of feel like in a way, this would be a very good introduction, I think, to the entire discussion between the continent and England, or that long, it's a long history, long story. And, you know, this one book, will you will gleam a lot about these differences. And, and, so I think I've left out Hannah Arendt. Do you want to get a sample? She taught at the University of Chicago, and so you kind of get a sense of. Um, and she and she lectured in English, so not German. So I don't really know. We'll taste of her. This is fun. This is from the last interview, and so this was. Um, déjà une sorte de tyrannie, and the tyranny, and the tyrant pourrait très bien être une majorité. Well, that's. But that would be a majority. Hence, the whole government. Par conséquent. This is um. I'm sorry. This is um. This is. It was they did a they did an overdubbing in French because for French television. So I'm trying to find. Something where you can hear her. Uh, here we go. This is her discussing. Indeed, violence, contrary to what its prophets tried to tell us, is much rather the weapon of reformers than of revolution. France would not have perceived the most radical reform bill since Napoleon to change the education system without the riot of the French students. And no one would have dreamt of yielding to reforms of Columbia University mm -hmm. without their riots during the spring term. 
Still, the danger of the practice, even if it moves consciously within a non-extremist framework of short-term goals, will always be that the means might overwhelm the end. If goals are not achieved rapidly, its only result will be that the whole climate of the country has become more violent and that the eventual defeat will bring about conditions considerably worse than those existing before. Finally, the greater the bureaucratization of public life, the greater will be the attraction of power. In a fully developed bureaucracy, there is nobody left with whom one could argue, to whom one could... So that's an interesting point. She's saying that the more bureaucratic society becomes, the more the masses want to turn to violence because they're alienated. There's nobody, if you have a grievance, there's nobody to address the grievance. So you'll turn to guns or, or you know, we're, look, we're living now through the thing she's talking about. So it's kind of, you know, I mean, look, I mean, this is the, this stuff. I mean, one thing you can see, you can say a lot about these two figures, but they're not irrelevant. And they're not, neither one of them is not speaking to our presence. So, you know, but that's an example of her style, which is very severe, very serious. So I'm thinking, I read this book, why would they like each other? They're totally different. Even though they're, they're the same field, even though they agree on basic principles, it's like temperaments, like oil and, oil and water. Now, I'm much more close spiritually to Berlin. I got to own up to that. You know, look, I mean, that's, you know, I'm much more like Berlin than Hannah Arendt. Uh, I think that younger people, millennials love, they're really into Hannah Arendt. I think they appreciate her moral seriousness and her earnestness. And I think uh, the fact that she's not afraid of radicalism, the fact that in the late 60s, she's yes to the student revolutionaries. I have letters here where Isaiah Berlin is saying these awful students, you know, ruining, ruining culture. It's a, it's, you know, the way it goes, right? So uh, I really recommend this book. I recommend, I mean, Kei Haruda, um, there's, a, I mean, it's just, I can't, I can't possibly get into all, all this. It's too, it's too dense, you know. But uh, you know, I just I just think it's great. What's interesting about this book is that for two years I've been thinking somebody needs to write a book on Hannah Arendt and Isaiah Berlin. I'm surfing the internet and look, boom, this comes up. Somebody wrote this book this year. And so that's why it's on this program. That's why I did this topic. That's why. In a future bunk lunch, we're going to cover this. This is Samantha Rose Hill's book on Hannah Arendt. And this is a beautiful, this is the book that inspired me to change my 70s book. See, because she has, see how she has text and she has these wonderful images of different things from her life. You know, and different, look at that. And she has the text and the images. Um, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to have a book, my 70s book, and have images from these movies or TV shows and work, kind of work the text. So, so there's a, there's a, there's a sense in which uh, in the future, I want to, I want to maybe go into this a little bit more. 
Um, I think I've said a lot. I hope not too much. And I think it's uh, it's a half hour. There's a lot more I could say. Um, I could maybe read. I've closed with a letter, one of Berlin's letters. Um, let's see here. This is a this is a Isaiah Berlin hearing that John Kennedy was assassinated. So it's 1963. Now he was friendly with the Kennedys, and there's there's actually letters to Jacqueline Van Kennedy Onassis, and uh, this is him one of his letters. He says, "I dined with my host and was walking towards the lecture hall when someone said to me, 'Isn't this terrible?'" I thought idiotically he meant that it was a terrible thing to have gone to the lecture, since he knew, as all my friends do, the agonies I suffer before talking in public. That's interesting. So he talks in public, and every time he does it, he suffers an agony. And I'm saying to you, he's one of the best speakers of the 20th century. I think. I like the way he speaks, but whatever. Um, whatever the occasion. I therefore said, yes, I do feel awful. I suppose I must go through with it. Give another lecture. Right. <laughs> I have to do this podcast, do a little, another live stream. No, I actually enjoy it. Anyhow, um, yes, I do feel awful, but I have to go through with it. A few yards later, someone said to me, this is appalling news. I realized something had happened and was told that President Kennedy had been assassinated. I found it impossible to continue walking. The last time that this had happened to me, and an even greater degree, is when I read about the death of President Roosevelt in 1945. I should interject too that he was very close to the New Deal. He worshiped both FDR and Winston Churchill, Isaiah Berlin did. He was very, I just wanted to make that clear because it's so when President Roosevelt dies, that's a big deal for him. But he's saying that I felt sim I, he felt similarly when Jack Kennedy died, right? He says that the last time I felt this way, I did not feel so violently when I heard of the death of Kennedy, but he was too with all of his obvious faults, was a liberator and a hero on the right side in all the public issues that mattered. I begged to be allowed an interval of a quarter of an hour or so before beginning my lecture. This was granted. I drank two glasses of cold water, came to and delivered my lecture in a perfectly normal manner. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, when you read somebody like him, and I, I don't know, stuff like that comes up. And, you know, we're in 2022. John Kennedy's not the president. And um, we're in a very different world. We have internet and media. And um, I don't know. What can I tell you? Um, that's, that's our book lunch for today. The book is Hannah Arendt. And Isaiah Berlin. It, it is written for a specialized audience, so my apologies that it's not, you know, it's not like a book for everybody necessarily. Although, I think you should. I think everybody should. It's fascinating, and uh, I'm going to do a surprise pop-up stream soon. I don't know when, but look for that. Totally unrelated to this material, and uh, uh, thank you for joining me, and um, have a good rest of the week.